Good to see everyone today. We will, oh, you're so kind, thank you. We, um, we welcome you here in the sanctuary and in Brown Chapel and everyone online. Um, you are a part of our gathering and for those of you that are not able to be here yet, just remember you are loved, you are missed and you are prayed for. And um, we, we're thankful that we're getting more and more people wanting to come out and be a part of the service in person. We celebrate that. Um, we wanted to, we're not making an announcement yet, but we wanted you to realize that uh, we, we realize we're running out of space and we're going to be looking at a second service, but we are trying to uh, find the best way to do that in the best time. And we're going to be getting word to you about that as soon as we can. I also want to welcome our experienced guests that are here today. Um, I want to remind you, as the announcements referred to today, but it'll, it'll be here before we know it, Associate Pastor Day is May 16th, and you'll be getting some more information about that. Um, we are excited to honor those that labor among us. They are such a great team. Please don't forget tonight, well, this afternoon, 5 p.m., is our annual church council. Um, we, the last few years, our council has gone... Uh, lasted between 30 and 45 minutes. So if you can be here at five, if you are a, a partner in ministry, if you can be here at five, we've got just a couple of um, reports and items of business to take care of. We should be through, uh, I think, easily by 545, if not earlier. But uh, we, we need a quorum. We need you to be here. And uh, that'll be this afternoon at five o'clock. And um, uh, let's see. I think that's all of the announcements. I do want to uh, let you know that um, this morning, uh, about three o'clock or so, uh, Jack Taylor uh, changed residence and went to heaven. And we we mourn the loss, but my goodness, how do you how do you stay upset over somebody like Jack going to heaven? So. Um, I, I got to talk with, well, he wasn't able to talk, but I got to, to bless and speak with him uh, before he passed. And it was, uh, it was such an honor and such an experience. And, and um, uh, Jack is in the presence of the Lord. So be praying for Frida. And um, there's a possibility, we don't know yet, uh, they haven't made a decision, but there's a possibility that the funeral will be here. Uh, but we'll, whether it's here or wherever, we'll get the details to you just as soon as we can. So remember to pray for Frida and for Tim and, uh, and his family as well. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? We've about got it memorized, which is good because we have, we have so many different versions. Somebody uh, every now and then will say, well, why don't we do it from this version or that version? And um, I'm already leading this with about nine versions in my mind. So that's why I keep looking at the screen to be sure I'm at the right one. But I think it's serving us well. Lord, we open our heart to you. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Lord, we also open our hearts to you for the word of God today. Uh, help us to understand this passage that it almost seems a little mystical. It's, it's a little difficult to understand, not because it's not true, but because of several factors we'll talk about. But it is nonetheless important because the scripture of itself says that all scripture, Old and New Testaments, the things that are easily grasped and the things that are not easily grasped, all scripture is given by God and all scripture is profitable for instruction, for correction, for uh, enhancing godly living. We thank you that every verse from uh, 
uh, even including the, the pots and pans section, is profitable for us as we journey with Jesus. So help us to come alive with this word by the power of the Holy Spirit and help us to keep becoming more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. We've been talking this year about fighting the good fight. We began taking several weeks to discuss what it looked like for the church to be in Babylon, going to the book of Daniel and looking at the situation that Judah faced as they um, found themselves in, in captivity. And we found that God kept giving them amazing promises. Um, the one that most of us have on our refrigerator, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. We must not forget that that was given to them as they were going into the darkest, uh, most troubling days of their life. Uh, my favorite verse that you all know is my favorite verse, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning and great is your faithfulness. Oh God, that is from the book of Lamentations that Israel discovered and, and Jeremiah wrote as they were going into captivity. So God knows what he's doing and he knows how to help us through these situations. So we, we began with that and then we said there are several things, truths that we need to latch on to that tell us how to behave and how to believe. And that's what we're always on a quest for, how to behave and how to believe. And we've also said there were some things that seemed to just stand alone. They almost seem difficult to understand. Last week, um, of course, forgiveness is always a good topic to talk about because we all struggle generally with the idea of, of forgiveness. Um, or maybe I should say we struggle with unforgiveness, but we talked about that. And today I want to bring up uh, another one of those standalone statements that I think will become more and more important for us as we move into this next era. And as we ask this question, what does it mean to become a profitable servant? What does it mean to become a profitable servant? We don't always understand how truly valuable something that God has brought into our life really is. I, I know I'm, I'm not a skinny man, but I, I was for many years Growing up, I was painfully thin. The doctors kept thinking something was wrong with me. And my mother finally, she just said, we've taken him to doctor after doctor. He eats well, he takes vitamins, but he is just rail thin. And my grandmother said, well, is that all you're worried about? I know what's wrong with him. She put her hand on my shoulder and said, that boy is, uh, she said, that boy eats so much, it makes him poor to carry it around. <laughs> uh, so she was, she was saying, we're, we're not realizing she's, he's going to be okay. And boy, did I make up for lost time. <laughs> uh, my dad used to hire in his store, he used to hire um, the sons that were about my age. And my dad always gave all of his, his sons a job at the tire store. And he used to hire uh, the sons of friends of his to give them a help, you know, a, a, a start in summer jobs and what have you. And uh, I, I remember the, the first time that uh, I was introduced to the idea of minimum wage and the thought that I was going to get a dollar and 45 cents every hour, regardless of whether we were busy or not. It was phenomenal to me. You know, and um, um, I, I remember my dad lecturing one of the boys that he had hired. And I, I would tell you some of the funny things that happened, but I'm so afraid that the family would know who it is and I would get in trouble. But my dad would, I, I've seen him do it two or three times. He'd put his arm around somebody, take him to the side and say, we'll just make up a name. Corey, he says, Corey. He, he would say, he would use this phrase. He said, it's costing me more 
to pay for your damages than, uh, than I'm bringing in with business. It's costing me, it's, I'm losing money to have you work here. We're going to have to straighten up. You're going to have to do better. And to my dad's credit, he'd work with them and give them an apprentice, you know, that sort of thing. And um, sometimes I wonder if our service to the Lord might not be the same way in, in this respect. We might not realize how truly valuable some people are any more than we realize how far many of us have to go to become profitable. Now, you see, you say, well, you tell me that I'm a sinner, then you tell me I'm a saint. Pastor, where am I? I mean, what, what group do I fit into? Well, the answer is yes, you do. And <laughs> let, me, let me just make it clear, and this will help you. Before Jesus comes into our life, before the cross, God relates to us as sinners. The, the wrath of God is already being poured out. Now the mercy of God tempers it so that even the worst sinners might not realize that the wrath of God is resting on them already. But it's along with the, the mercy of God. Before the cross, God deals with me as a sinner. Um, after the cross, he deals with us as a son or as a daughter, as a child, if you want to use that phrase. I'm just looking for words that begin with the same letter. So he, he deals with us before the cross as a sinner. He deals with us after the cross as a son or as his child. But this should not bring confusion on the day of judgment. He's not going to judge us as a sinner. Our sins are forgiven. He's not going to judge us as a son or as a child because that is a relationship of mercy and grace and affection. But he will reward us as a servant. You say, I'm not his servant, I'm his friend. Well, in, in one very real respect, that's true. But you won't be judged. I won't be judged. And by judged, I mean rewarded. Our, our sins, if we're Christians, have been dealt with. And we'll never have to face those sins again. We're not going to get to heaven and you know, hear Gabriel say, close but no cigar, go on to hell. No, that's not going to happen. But the basis of our reward is not based on us being a sinner. That's the past. It's not based on us being a son or a child. That's our relationship. But you and I will receive a reward or lose a reward on the basis of our servanthood. We will be judged as servants. Now, let's read this text. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to read it from the New American Standard, but... In the King James, this may make it come alive to some of you that are from my generation where we learned it in the King James. The phrase that was used was unprofitable servants. NASB says unworthy slaves. But where in the world did this idea come from and what does it mean? And I want to tell you this. I believe if we can wrap our heads around this concept, it will free us to serve the Lord without the, the, the pressure or the, or the intimidation or, or the manipulation that has been a part of our service to him in so many days in the past. Let's read this passage. It's from Luke 17. Now, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him after he comes in from the field, come immediately and recline at the table to eat. On the contrary, will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He says even, even a slave or a servant, when they have done all of the work they come in, it's not time for them to shower and relax. It's time for them to change clothes and serve the master. He said he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which were commanded of you, say we are unworthy slaves or unprofitable servants 
because we have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, loved ones, I want to tell you that this is a very difficult passage to understand, not because the concept is beyond grasping. It's difficult to understand because it's so easy to misunderstand. We read this passage and we come away with the feeling, well, no matter what I do, I'm just still a piece of garbage. I'm just an unprofitable servant. No matter what I do, I'm still not worth anything. That's not what this passage is about, but that's the most natural understanding. It's the most natural understanding. What does it mean to become a profitable servant? Or what does it mean to be an, an unprofitable servant? Now, whenever we see a passage of Scripture that's difficult to understand, the first thing we do after we pray and ask the Lord to help us is we go back and look at the context. What were the verses before it? What are the verses after it? Now, you can't always be led by chapter divisions because the chapter divisions, the Word is inspired, but chapter divisions are not. They were given to us by a, um, a godly, uh, it, I think he was a monk, if I'm remembering correctly, um, in around the 15th or 16th century. And it was just to help us be able to locate passages of Scripture. You know, even in the Scripture, one of, one of the apostles said, somewhere it says, <laughs> and I thought, boy, he needed chapter and verses. We can find it, but he said somewhere it says, in other words, he knew it was in there, but he said, I, you know, he might have said, it's in the fourth scroll, but I can't tell you exactly where, but he knew it was there. And somebody came up with the great idea of dividing chapter and verses, and it is a great idea. But you've got to understand, sometimes the chapter break will come right in the middle of a thought. So sometimes you have to go to the verse before, I mean, the chapter before to understand what's being said. Sometimes you have to go to the chapter after to understand what's being said. But generally speaking, uh, he did a good job of dividing, of dividing chapters and verses. Um, the problem with finding the context for this is that it doesn't seem to have a context. Um, let me explain to you what I mean by that. Before, the chapter before is about the rich man and Lazarus. And that's a heavy duty lesson about the reality of heaven and hell. And then when we get into Luke 17, um, he talks about uh, how, how difficult it is to, to walk the right path. And he says, woe to those that have become a stumbling block. And then out of nowhere, he says, uh, you need to increase your faith. And then he starts talking about unprofitable servants. There's a couple of possibilities that we have here. One is that when, when Luke was writing chapter 17, he was simply telling stories that Jesus told on that setting. And it's not meant to be a continual narrative where this verse is tied to this verse and tied to this verse. It's simply saying on this day, these are the lessons he taught us. And, um, you know, without modern punctuation, we don't even know where the paragraphs begin and end in scripture the, that we, we call them pericopes or the divisions. Sometimes we just have to make an assumption that this is here and this is what it means. But you can read uh, Luke 17 all day long and you're going to find difficulty bringing it to a context. Because you remember a context or excuse me, a text without a context is just a pretext. That's why you can prove anything you want to prove if you're willing to take a text out of context. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, uh, teachings that's going around and you say that's not biblical and they say, yes, it is right here in this verse. But what they've done is they've taken this verse out of context totally and it doesn't mean what they say it means. And then we have pseudo scholars. How many of you can tell I'm trying to just deal with stuff today. Then we, then we have pseudo scholars that say, well, you'd understand it differently if you understood the Greek and the Hebrew. But let me tell you this, um, most of those that, under, that say you'd know it if you understood what the Greek and Hebrew said have never had a day of Greek and Hebrew in their life. They, they get it from Strong's Concordance or somebody else. Um, 
Um, Jeremiah Johnson tells about someone that his hottest selling tape series, or not tape series, but DVD series, was on the meaning of a Hebrew word. And I looked at the Hebrew word, I, and I'm, I'm certainly no Hebrew scholar, but I said, that's not Hebrew. I said, number one, the structure of that is Greek, but I said, I don't even think that's a real word. And he, the guy said, no, it's not. I made it up, but nobody knows I made it up. This is the confession of a Bible teacher online. Nobody made it up. They're just so impressed with the way that word sounds and they're taking my word for it. And what I'm saying is true. The word's not real, but what I'm saying is true. And a lot of what he was saying was true. But the problem is he was creating a word. I mean, it's like me saying, please go out to the schnitzel fly and, you know, pick up your bulletin. No. Now, that may be a real word. I think it's something like rotting German food or something that I, I don't know. So what do we do with this passage about unprofitable servants? You say, well, and, and people say this too. They said, well, the scripture interprets itself. Any place you see a word used, it's interpreted that way throughout the scripture. Nah, not really. Um, Satan is called a roaring lion seeking to devour. But Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's no commonality there. Um, leaven, for instance, um, in many instances, leaven is a picture of evil, but there are at least three other passages where leaven is not evil. It's just seen as influence. Um, uh, you know, a thorn in the flesh um, in the old Testament, it is seen as the result of not dealing with enemy camps and not bringing everything under control in your life. But in the New Testament, a thorn in the flesh as seen as something that creates difficulty in our lives that is beyond our control. Paul's thorn in the flesh wasn't because he had not conquered all of his enemies. Paul's thorn in the flesh was something that God gave to him in the wisdom of Almighty God. So what it means here might not mean the same thing there because in Matthew 25, there were unprofitable servants, but that was not good. They were unprofitable servants that were thrown into outer darkness. That was Matthew 25. But in Luke 17, when we've done everything right, he says, you're an unprofitable servant. So it adds to the mystery. You guys still with me? I think what we have to do is interpret passages like this in the light of every other passage of Scripture on the same kind of idea. You remember we've said it before, you don't build doctrine on a verse. You build doctrine on the verses. We have to consider everything. There's some passages you read about prayer where it sounds like if you've got any faith at all, if you ask, you're gonna have it. But there are other passages about prayer where it tells us to contend and we fight for it and, and we push, you know, pray until something happens, that's push. And I'm, I'm saying that uh, it, it's bad to not know the scriptures or the power of God as Jesus spoke to the Sadducees. But what's worse is to know the scriptures and the power of God and not interpret it correctly. That's a dangerous place to be. Um, I think what we're looking at is a couple of things, and I'll explain as we work through this. Don't worry, the, the introduction's as long as the sermon, so I, I'm, we'll be okay, we'll be okay. Um, I think one of the things this verse is teaching us is that as we serve the Lord, we need to understand the value of our service to the Lord. We need to understand that we live in an upside down kingdom where the first can be last, last can be first. We, we, we will never look at the kingdom of God. We'll never look at the kingdom of God and understand fully what's valuable and not valuable. I was wondering this morning what, what I, and there's no answer to it. What was Jack's first impression of heaven? I, I mean, there's no way of knowing, 
But he said, he told me this one time, I said, what do you think the first thing you'll think in heaven will be? He said, I don't know, but I suspect it will be how wrong I had it on this side, thinking this is what heaven must be. And I, and I, and I wonder if he's right. I, 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 I have said, and I believe it, when we see him, I think, I think the first thing that will cross our mind will, will be the sense of his glory, but the right on the heels of that, and I can't give you a verse for this, but I think we will be amazed when we see him, we will be amazed at how little we loved him and how poorly we served him. That's not condemnation. I'm just saying when we see him, we will realize, oh Lord, oh Lord, we should have loved you more, should have served you better. Um, I remember uh, there's another lesson, I think, and that is to not think of ourselves too highly. Um, I remember back uh, uh, 30 some odd years ago when the church, especially evangelical church and especially Pentecostal church went through the failure of some of its chief servants and went through the fall of some of its biggest quote stars. Uh, one person made an appeal. This was why they didn't want to have to spend any time, uh, you know, on the sidelines while healing and restoration took place. They said the, the statement was made that God has given us such a responsibility that if you force me to sit to the side, God will have, I mean, we will have to shut down the ministry for months and it may take us years to, to catch up to where we are now. And if you force us to sit to the side, millions upon millions of people will go to hell and it will be your fault. And I, I, I listened to that and I realized this person does not understand. This person is convinced that they are the key and the hinge upon which the kingdom of God swings, not God. God can, can use donkeys to talk if a prophet doesn't listen. And, and I, I realized, uh, you know, he said, we, we'll lose our support. I didn't support the person, but when I realized that they had had this problem and they were going to have to sit out for a while, Ramona and I said, well, we'll support him now. We believe, we believe in his ministry. We'll support him now. You see, he thought people would flee, but if he had just understood what needed to be done, he might have survived and been stronger than ever before. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to pass judgment on that, brother. I'm, the, I'm like the weaned baby we talked about last week. Such things are too lofty for me. I don't understand. I'm just saying when, when we start evaluating what's profitable and what's unprofitable, we don't always understand. It seems, this verse does, to focus on expectations in regard to our service. Not from God, but from us. He says, you are going to serve me because that's the nature of the kingdom. And every one of us knows that we need to serve the Lord. Every one of us knows we should have a ministry. And some of our ministries are high profile. Some of our ministries are behind the scene. Nobody knows it. But we all have to get to the point where we have expectations that are consistent with Scripture. Now, I, I, I'm not sure the order I put it in your notes, but let me make a couple of preliminary observations um, that I think we need to understand from this verse that we just read, these verses about when you've done everything you know to do, consider yourself an unprofitable servant. And it was about expectations. We know that because he said, after you've worked in the field, don't expect to come in and have an honored seat at the table. You're still a servant. Come in and continue to serve. Here are some negative implications. And by negative, I don't mean that they're wrong or sinful. I just mean they're not ones we'd put on our refrigerator. Number one, in our greatest service, we still have merited nothing. In our greatest service, we still have merited nothing. Remember this, we will not be rewarded on the quantity of what we do, 
but the quality of what we do. And this will be, I think, the pivotal question um, besides why we did what we did for the Lord. The pivotal question will be this. How closely did I come to fully obeying God's plan for my life? I think that's why some of the greatest in heaven will be people that have never been heard of because we tend to give the, the, the awards in advance to those that have done the most, to those who, who have names that we, that we honor and, uh, and we don't understand that this person may have done this much. But what if God gave them the ability to do this much? What about the person that only did this much, but that's all the ability God gave them? I remember talking to a pastor one time and uh, I'm, I'm, it's funny, but I'm not making fun of him because I've done the same kind of thing. He said, uh, I've, he said, I've, I've come to think that uh, there's a character that I want to do a series on. And I said, oh, that's great. He, he said, I've never done a series before. He said, but I'm thinking of doing a series. And he said, I need you to tell me everything you know about him. And I said, okay. I said, who are we talking about? And he said, Antiochus Epiphanes. And I said, okay, Antiochus Epiphanes is, I said it. And I said, this is what I know. I said, I'm no expert, but, um, and I didn't want to embarrass this man by saying it's not Antiochus Epiphanes. I'd say, this is what I know about Antiochus Epiphanes. This is what I know about him. And I, I said Antiochus Epiphanes probably eight times. And he said, oh, Antiochus Epiphanes. <laughs> and he never did develop the series. I don't know what he was thinking because he was a wicked man. He was a forerunner of Antichrist during the Greek period of occupation in, in Israel. But I, I, I went away thinking and I just kind of chuckled. I honestly wasn't making fun of him because we all do things like that. But I started thinking if old Antiochus thought my name's going to be remembered by history, if he only knew that it would be mispronounced. <laughs> now, in our greatest service, we will still have merited nothing. And the second thing we need to remember is that our service is not, quote, profitable to God. Not profitable to God. I remember when I was little and my dad didn't have a lot of skills as far as building and doing things like this, but he had a few skills. And, and um, I, I remember my dad was good about this, the, the handful of skills that he had. Um, and they were more in our garden and things like that. My dad would, would share his skills. And as I got older, you know what I began to realize? It was far more time consuming for him to teach me to do something than to just do it himself. You know what it's like raising your kids. It's far easier to just take the garbage out than to get your child to take the garbage out. You're exhausted by the time they finally get. And, and I, I got sidetracked with taking the garbage out. I was growing up, you know, take the garbage out. And I got sidetracked by something. Uh, you know, I'm like the, the, the person that had a t-shirt. I, I, I thought I can understand this. I, I'm, I'm not ADD, but I, but I understand it. Uh, the the t-shirt said, they say I have ADD, but I don't believe, oh, look, a rabbit, you know. <laughs> I think every child's like that in junior high. And I remember I took, the, I took the garbage can out and something got my attention. I left it in the middle of the driveway halfway out. My daddy came home, couldn't park had to get out, move the garbage can, then pull in the driveway. He said, son, what, what were you thinking? Leaving the can in the middle of the driveway. I said, I was taking the garbage out. He said, let me tell you this. It's best when you take it out, go ahead and take it all the way out. <laughs> it would have been easier for my dad to just take the garbage out. Just take the garbage out. So whatever we do for the Lord, we don't profit him. 
Even our best services are mingled with imperfections. Even our best services are mingled with imperfections. Now, there are some positive implications. This word that we read does not speak of our worth when he says you are an unprofitable servant. It does not speak of our worth, but only explains that we have not increased God's value, nor have we benefited his standing. This passage of scripture is not trying to say, Justin, even when you do everything that you're supposed to do, you're still worthless. No, what it's trying to do is say, Justin, even when you've done everything that he asked you to do, he is still God above all. And you have been part of what he's doing, but he is not God almighty because of anything you did. Our master, the second thing, looks for an attitude of appreciation not one that grudgingly does what must be done. Both in that passage we just read and the passage we're about to read, the thing that the householder was looking for and, and rewarded was an attitude of, I get to be a part of an enterprise greater than I am. Now, let me give you one more thing before we read another scripture and begin to land this plane. A proper attitude of service does not Seek one's comfort or compensation, even though God promises eventual reward. There were those that stopped following Jesus because the demand was becoming greater and greater and greater. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, Will you leave me too? That's why we know that numbers is not always the ultimate indicator of the health of a church. It's an important one. But every church will have a time. Every ministry will have a time when it's growing and then it declines. It's just the way it works. Now, if you hold steady, that decline will usually pick back up. But sometimes we just have to find our place of most efficiency. And Jesus looked at the disciples and said, will you leave me also? And Peter said, well, who are we going to go to? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of truth. So we have to understand that our service to him and our devotion to him is not about comfort or compensation, not in this life, not in this life. Let's read one more passage of scripture and I'm not going to change and preach two sermons. I, I, I have preached on Matthew 20 uh, probably a half dozen times. We've talked about the 11th hour servants. I'm not going to do that again, but I want to remind you of that story. And let's see if we can dig a little bit deeper into this mystery. Jesus said, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers. For his vineyard. After a now, those of you that got disconnected online, uh, we just gave out the winning lottery numbers prophetically. <laughs> but uh, if we have time, we'll come back to it. But, But when they were paid, they also received a day's wage. Whether you worked an hour or 12 hours, you received the same pay. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Now we see what this story is about. It's about expectations and attitude. We now have people, and let me tell you this, they were the most promising people of the bunch. That's why they were hired at six that morning. The laborer looked at them and said, if anybody can get in a harvest, it's these people. So the people that should have celebrated the end gathering of the harvest are now at the end of the day complaining about someone else's penny. But the master replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a penny? What he's saying is, look, when you entered this, this was between me and you. And it was about me and you. It was about your relationship and responsibility to me. 
What makes you think the terms change because of someone else? Peter would not learn this lesson right away because one day he would say, well, Lord, what about this man? Talking about John. You know, you tell me to feed the sheep. You tell me when I'm old, they're going to take me away by force. What about him? And Jesus said John, or to, to Peter about John, it doesn't matter if this man lives until I return. You feed my sheep. You follow the contract we've set together. And John said that was such a powerful moment, but they still didn't understand it. John said in his gospel, he said, and that's why there's a rumor going around today that says, speaking of himself, that apostle, John, will live till Jesus comes back. And he was the only one that lived to really old age, so maybe they had reason to believe it, you know. And then he wraps up this teaching. He, he says, uh, take what belongs to you and go. You know, this, this is not open the door for negotiation. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Now let's very quickly, it's going to go fast, so buckle up. Look at the owner of the vineyard. He knew his business. He did not miscalculate or present unrealistic expectations. He knew the value of the harvest. Let me tell you, this problem getting the harvest in was not the fault of the vineyard owner. And can I tell you this? Anything you and I are disgruntled about, it's not God's fault. He knows the harvest. He knows the terms. He knows what we need. And you know what? I have found that the only time I tend to get a bad attitude in my service to the Lord is when I'm distracted by somebody that seems to have a better situation than me. I'm talking about years ago. I've never seen anybody since I've been here that has a better situation. No, you know what it is. It's nothing, it's nothing like a church or, or, or pay. It's usually over something trivial. We get upset over trivial things. So, but we have to remember the owner of the vineyard knows his stuff. And whatever you feel God has failed you over in your life, let me tell you, he knows his stuff. And he has not shortchanged you. The second thing, look at the early workers. They were experienced workers. They were probably the best and the brightest. They were experienced. They thought they could maybe stretch out the job. They knew it was a big job. Now it doesn't deny that it was a big job. But here were men that did this for a living and maybe one of them kind of got the idea going around. He said, guys, just follow my lead. We can stretch this into two days and we won't have to worry about tomorrow. Because most of the middle class in those days, they, unless you had a skill like uh, Jesus grew up in a, a, a carpenter's home, which meant a craftsman's home, perhaps a stonemason, perhaps a, a mixture of working with wood and stone. That you, had a, you had a craft and you were a little better off than the day laborers. But the day laborers would go into town. The owners of the field would come in and say, I need 42 men today. And he would pick what appeared to be the best and most fit. They said, maybe we can stretch this out for two days. But the problem is this. You can always tell when the harvest is not the concern of a worker. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He says, the hireling, the one that has been hired to just take care of the sheep, whenever the wolf comes, he runs and leaves the sheep alone. He says, that's not a shepherd, that's a hireling. And it was the same thing with working in the field. There, there's a, the best workers are those that even though it's not their property, they connect, they bond with it. Okay? The urgency of the harvest wasn't their concern, only job security. But let's look at those 11th hour workers. 
These guys had lost opportunity, or so they thought. They were in town before 6 a.m. thinking, if we're going to get a job, we'll get one early. They had lost opportunity. The day was gone. There was no reason for them to expect to get any work. There was only an hour left in the work day, but they were hired and they knew they were not deserving of a day's pay, but they worked with great zeal with such intensity that they became thankful to earn only a pittance to get something to sustain their family. What they might have expected, maybe there was a group of 10 of them and they said, we, we, we're, we're, we're not going to get a day's pay. We're not even going to get a penny. But maybe we as a group will get a penny and we can buy what we can with this penny and divide it in our families. But we're so thankful we'll have something Perhaps they saw the desperation in the eyes of the landowner. Whatever the reason, they remained available even when hope for wages seemed lost. Now, let's wrap this up. What do we learn from this drama? There are three Christian life lessons that I want to give you, and we'll do it quickly. Here's number one. We must learn from this story about being an unprofitable servant that heaven supremely values the harvest and rewards those who understand and embrace the mission. That's why whether you are a pastor or of a church or a bishop of an organization or an assistant teacher in junior boy Sunday school, that's why God looks for men and women that even though they do not own the flock, even though they do not own the denomination, even though they don't receive pay for teaching that junior boys Sunday school class, they understand the value. They understand the value of the job they are doing. My pastor, we never averaged over 130, 132 or three in all of my growing up years. We used to have the, the board up on the side that would say today's attendance, today's offering, record attendance. Record attendance was 228. And from the time I left to go to college, up until then, I, from the time I learned to read numbers, we never came anywhere near 228 again. Never, never. But we were steady at 120, 130, right in there. But I want to tell you, per capita, per capita, my pastor probably produced more preachers and missionaries than any of the other churches, and maybe some of them put together. Um, there was something about my pastor. He understood something about the call of God. He understood something about the nature of the harvest. And, and we had people that would come and I was so impressed. These people are ministering to Native Americans. These people are ministering in Africa. And I was so impressed. And then it was only afterwards, after they started talking, that I found out they're from our church. They were a generation before me. They're, they're from our church. I remember when J.W. Tucker, missionary um, to the Congo in 1963, I believe it was, died. And, and they, they, they beat him to death. The uh, rebels, political rebels, beat him to death and threw his body into the river. And he was eaten by crocodiles. His wife and children did not know what had happened to him. They received a phone call and the phone call said this, he is in heaven. Sister Tucker said, how is my husband? And a Catholic nun that had been allowed access said, he is in heaven. He is in heaven. She later wrote a book called He is in Heaven. And I remember when that happened, our pastor called the church to prayer. That was probably a hundred people. He called us to prayer and said, loved ones, we've got to learn that what appears to be lost isn't always lost. And we are not a big church, but we want to pray that God will take this unspeakable tragedy. I want to tell you, the church was shocked. 
That was something that happened 100 years ago, not in the 1960s. And he called us to prayer and my pastor over that little congregation wept and wept and cried and said, oh God, avenge the life of J.W. Tucker by you, not by killing the people that killed him, but avenge the life of J.W. Tucker by causing his voice to be heard where it wouldn't have been heard before. And let me tell you what happened. Years later, the, um, the, there was a, oh, it's, it's so complicated. He was killed by the rebels, but some, some of the inhabitants of the land fulfilled the wishes of the rebels. And it was, a, it was an unholy alliance. But when they threw him into the river and they realized he had been eaten by the crocodiles, which my thought was, Lord, why, why couldn't you even bring him home to be buried? His children, his wife never see his body. But what the enemy didn't think of is that there was a custom in that area of the Congo. The river brought life. So anybody that gave their life in the river had to be heard. They had to be heard because the river of life had received them and assumed their life. And there were uh, a number, I don't remember how many, but there were a number of villages that had been hostile to the gospel that surrendered en masse to the Lord when the missionaries came in and said, this man gave his life. He died in this river so you could know the gospel. And guys, I just, I want to tell you, we, we have it wrong. We have it wrong. We think buildings or parsonages or private jets, we measure wrongly in so many instances what's important in heaven. It's the harvest. Here's number two. Even if there is something strong in others or weak in us, time will reveal the true value of the best servants. Just give it time. Theodore Roosevelt said that comparison is the biggest thief of joy. And what he was saying is we ought to be joyful with what God has given us. And the moment we lose joy is when we start comparing ourselves with what others have. You say, well, I, I, you know, I think I'm pretty good catch for God. Well, let me tell you Paul's estimation of himself and others. He says, not many mighty, not many noble are chosen, but God has chosen the weak and feeble things of the world to complete his purposes. And that's why the gospels have it over and over again. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. I've only heard that used consistently in terms of, you know, let's sit in in an obscure spot so we'll be first to go through the buffet. And And everybody that does that is joking. I know that. I know that. But Jesus kept reminding them, guys, it's not what you think. It's not how you think. Here's the last thing. True servants don't focus on fairness. True justice isn't always seen quickly in this upside down kingdom. Now I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about uh, areas where we need to see fairness. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about in the kingdom of God, we need to understand that God keeps good records and it will be right. But it may be the opposite. It may be the opposite of what we think. It may be the opposite of what we think. I remember reading the Far Side cartoon and Noah's up on deck about to call the animals in. And he says, okay, line up two by two. We're going to board all the animals and we're going to do this in alphabetical order. And then you see one of those little thought clouds over the zebra. The zebra goes, dang it, you know. No, it's not going to be like we think. It's not going to be like we think. Let me close with a Christmas story. I'm going to do like Hallmark. We'll just make it Christmas all year long. Listen to the closing couple of paragraphs of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. 
This is after Scrooge meets the three ghosts and he gets reformed and he turns into the best citizen of London. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, as good a man as, as the good old city knew or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh and little heeded them, for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good at which some people did not have their fill of laughter at the outset. And knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes and grins and have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, talking about the ghosts, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards. And I love this. This isn't in your notes, is it? Oh, it is in your notes? Okay, Here, it should be in bold print. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. The reason I, and I read Christmas story every year, and the reason I read this section at least two or three times is because of that phrase. He knew how to keep Christmas well if any man possessed the knowledge. Can I tell you, if you know Jesus, it's not a matter of whether or not you'll go to heaven. It's a matter of how well you lived your life on the way to heaven. I want, to, I want to ask you, I, I, I'll tell you this, churches are not fair, denominations are not fair, governments are not fair, pastors are not fair. All you have to do is live long enough and you will have reason to doubt almost every institution that's out there. But the question is, are you going to spend your life? And, and, and when you get my age, I want to speak to everybody my age and older. When you get our age where you start thinking about, you know, retirement and fixed income and you start thinking about all those things, I want to tell you, you can spend the rest of your life worrying about someone else's penny or you can make up your mind, the God who led me in this situation is still able to take care of me in this situation. All of us have a challenge. Some of you are so young, you're about to start a career and you say, boy, I've got some job offers, but I'll never even pay off my student loan at this rate. I understand that feeling. And others of you are at the place where you say, I gave my best years to that company. I gave my best years to that group. And now they give me a watch and send me off to pasture. Loved ones, this life, even in the most prosperous, blessed nation on earth, there will always be the challenge of what kind of servant are you? And it's, it's not just about the government. It's not just about your job. It's not just about this, that, or the other. It plays right into your role as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was, I was walking through a hospital in Mobile, Alabama. I pastored, a, oh, I don't know, about an hour, hour and a half away. And most of our folks, when they went to the hospital, they went to Mobile. And I went to Mobile. And on some days, it was a rush to get all of the visits in. And I was walking through the hospital. I came out of the, the clergy room where you got the room numbers and and I was walking at a pretty good clip and I passed a fellow that was just shuffling along. And I'm just, I'm on a tear. And I get about 15, 20 feet and I hear him call out, you'll slow down. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and we talked to make a long story short. He knew I was a pastor because we had been in that room at times to get our assignments, and, but I'd never met him. He said, yo, slow down. And I laughed. I said, I'm so sorry. I said, I shouldn't have just blazed past you. I didn't even know who I was walking by. He, he said it again, you'll slow down. And he put his, put his hand on my shoulder. He said, and just remember this, just remember this. He said, when you have to slow down, just remember that God has always been faithful. He said, I'm prophesying over you. God will all, has always been faithful and he who began that good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He said, my advice to you, young man, is to keep moving even if you have to slow down. Just keep moving. And then he walked off and left me. And I thought it was funny. I told Ramona and I thought this, this man's probably old and starting to lose it. I, I would look, looking back on him, I'd guess his age was... 66 years, two months, three weeks, and four days is my guess. I've wondered if he might have been future me. I don't know. First, I thought it was a funny thing, a man yelling at me, you'll slow down. But can I tell you through the years, I, I, I've... I have viewed that not as something funny, but I viewed that as something with profound wisdom. Because you know what he was saying? He was saying, it's not always going to be where you play out of your strength. And every now and then I thank God for that reminder. I'm sure he's probably in heaven by now because that was, that had to be 35 years ago probably. And seriously, he, he was probably close to 70, I would imagine, or maybe older. So I know he's got to be in heaven, but every once in a while, whenever we think we're owed something, I think it's best for us to just say, Lord, I'm going to serve you. And, it, and, and I realize that no matter what I do for you, I'm still an unprofitable servant. But again, that doesn't mean you're worthless. What it means is simply this, everything I do, I do for you. Everything I do, I do for you. Father, help us today to understand the privilege we have of serving the Lord and of being a servant. Lord, thank God we're no longer sinners. And thank you that we are your children. But Father, help us to remember that in our service, we are slaves. This is not built for us we are brought into the opportunity to serve you. Lord, I don't know exactly how to end this message. I know that you are going to begin to stir people to volunteer again. There may be some people that are here, you're speaking to them about a life of vocational ministry, maybe a missionary, maybe a worship leader, maybe a pastor, maybe a, a youth pastor. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I know this, now that things are beginning to settle down, at least on the surface, you're talking to us about what do we want to do with the rest of our life. Now, I also pray for those of us, oh, how do I say it? I guess I can pray it for all of us, not just the older ones. Lord, help us to finish well. Help us to finish well. Whether we're 20 or 80, let us resist the chip on our shoulder that the enemy wants to place there. I will say this. Theologians don't like it when I say this, but I'll say this. If heaven never were promised to me, I want to declare it has been worth it walking with the Lord, serving the Lord. Father, would you help us to fall in love with the idea of serving you? If there's anyone here in Brown Chapel, here in the sanctuary, if there's anyone online watching, 
help them to quit trying to find the lottery numbers for a minute. And if they don't know you as Lord and Savior, Father, if they're here, we ask that they will come forward to the ministry team and say, I want to know Jesus. If they're listening online, uh, live stream, either right now or later, we ask in Jesus' name that they would have the courage to call the number that's on the screen and call that number and someone that loves them and is concerned about them will answer and they can just simply say, I want to know Jesus and we'll know how to take it from there. You are worthy, Lord. You are worthy. You are worthy. Live or die, we are the Lord's. Exalted or humbled, we are the Lord's. Remembered or forgotten, we are the Lord's. As we leave this place today, Lord, help us to find our security in knowing that we are the Lord's. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.